I say we're going to finish this booklet. Somebody in the room, I'm not going to say who, but their name starts with an S, ends with a heron. <laughs> Says I'm not, all right? <laughs> but, but we'll see. My, if, it, if it's any consolation, everyone else I've talked to says the same thing. But um, <laughs> so I might just prove y'all wrong. Oh, uh, me. Um, now tonight, I'm grateful to be able to study this, and, and I've wanted to really spend so much time on this passage to really focus on the home. And we've dealt a lot about with this, specifically with um, how the home should look like, what it should look like. And I think all of us, if we're honest, we know, even outside of Scripture, what functional and proper function of a home and of a life should look like. However, we don't often get to see that or experience it or be that because of our own fallen natures, because of the fallen world we live in, and the fact that we marry fallen people, and, and vice versa. So we see that these things become um, so difficult. And the world in which we find ourselves, I believe, is so plagued because we have lost what it means to be godly men, godly women, to be godly husbands and, and, and wives and, and, and the whole nine yards. And we've, we've lost the home. And because we've lost the home, we, we've lost our communities. Uh, we've lost our, our nation. We've lost this world seems to have crumbled in this sort of downward uh, spiral. Uh, but uh, let's read tonight uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse number 20, down through 25. And then we're going to be starting off tonight looking at the picture of marriage, and then we're going to be jumping over to Ephesians 5. It says here in verse number 20, And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found in helpmeet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman." because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Where we left off last week is where we leave off in verse number 25. We have the perfect marriage. All is well. They've said their vows, if you will. They, the two are now one. It's no longer uh, two separate folks or two separate families. It's now one family, one uh, home unit, one heartbeat, one goal, one mission, one direction, the, the whole thing. There is a, a unity that takes place, and they are unashamed, and they are perfect in their marriage. It is a perfect marriage at this point because chapter 3 hasn't rolled along yet. And sin has not yet entered in to, to taint and to destroy uh, this, this union. Now, take your Bible and turn with me. You can hold your place there in Genesis if you want to, but uh, pretty easy to find. But turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter number 5. We're going to look tonight at verses 21 down through 33 to begin here. And then I've got a long quote for you. And it's uh, basically what it is. It's a short article. And I want to read that for you um, to help us sort of look at what it means in the home and in marriages and the family dynamic about the roles. And we have dealt a little bit about, uh, about this. But let's read tonight uh, Ephesians 5 verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. If you want the key to a perfect marriage, or the key to a perfect relationship, or, or at least, at best, a really good one, go ahead and get verse 21 and nail it to your heart. Submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God. 
Now, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Well, that was a blessed Eden. Let's all go home. Right? No, no, there's more, and there's much more. We're going to see why there's a reason there's much more than that. Unfortunately, and just a little side note here, unfortunately, in many of our independent Baptist circles, we have stopped at verse 22 and have not kept going. I want you to know the head of the home and the reason and the way in which a home will go is based upon whether or not that man, husband, or father is godly and submitted to the Lord or not. Um, I firmly believe that. I firmly stand by that. And I believe that, unfortunately, we have taught that much like Adam, it's all her fault. The sad truth, right? We might joke about it. We might laugh about it. But 99.9% of the time, it's not her fault or someone else's fault or the kid's fault or the dog's fault or the boss's fault. It is our fault. And us as men are unfortunately far too prideful to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and accept such and then be humble enough to do something about it. Besides, either one of two things tends to happen with us men here at this point. We either, one, become aggressive or angry or we play the blame game or we bottle everything up, we take our head and we put it into our shell and we won't say a word and we act like everything's fine, but it's not. Both of those are full of pride and selfishness. We've got to get a hold of this. It goes on in verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, and if you want more about that, I encourage you to go back and read Ephesians chapter 4, and you'll see more about the gifts of the body, the unity of the body, and what the edification of the body of Christ. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Unfortunately, what we're going to find in chapter 3 is that Adam did not love his wife as Christ loved the church. He allowed his wife to fall into sin. He allowed himself to fall into sin, which would then in turn allow his children to fall into a sin where even one of his boys would kill his other son. Murder. We think it really does boil down to some simple things of being a man being a woman who knows their role, but ultimately, and above all else, submits to God and to His Word. That's the key here. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. That He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. That He might present it to Himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The reason why everyone stands at a wedding is not because the guy in a tuxedo walks in. They don't stand for him. They look and go, oh, he managed to tie his shoes. He did good today, right? Good thing he's marrying her to take care of the rest, right, for, for the rest of his life. But who do they stand for? stand for the bride. Everyone stands, and they turn back to watch the bride come in, and what is she normally wearing? White. And normally everyone, no matter, <laughs> no matter if the bride is truly beautiful or not, on that day she is beautiful, isn't she? Because she is presenting herself to her husband as a pure bride 
to be joined together with him to be now one body, one flesh, one home. And this is the beautiful picture of what Paul paints for us here when it comes to Christ and how the home is to operate. If we understand on an individual level that as each one of us is to submit to the Lord, we're going to find that as we submit to the Lord in the fear of Him, we're going to find that we become better husbands and fathers. We're going to find that we become better wives and mothers. We're going to find that we become better children. We're going to find that we have a closer uh, family unit, a stronger, a more biblical family and household that will then make a biblical and a more strong uh, church family. And the stronger our churches are, the stronger our communities are, the stronger our communities are, the stronger our nation is. We see this and we think often that it's some sort of cliche or some sort of dream, but it truly starts at this fundamental level of the heart of every individual in our homes. Now he continues and he says, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Unfortunately today, far too many men do not love their wives like they love their own bodies. If they did, we would not have the statistics that show the pornographic rates and the adultery rates and the fornication rates and the divorce rates that we have today. Unfortunately, we have generation after generation that has been given the sort of mentality and ideology and theology that has been not theology, but a, a man-centered doctrine that makes them their own God while somehow serving God. You will not truly serve God if you are your own God. But the issue is that most men don't know that they are their own God, but yet that's how they live. If they don't know that, ask their wives. Their wives will tell all. And the truth will still remain that most marriages and in most homes are, are absolutely failing, not just because of the husband here, but as well because uh, of the wife. It always takes two to tango. There's always this sort of issue. And because it's two people who are both sinful coming together to try to make something like this that is beautiful and pure and perfect, but in our flesh we can't, but in Christ there is hope. In Christ there is redemption. In Christ there is restoration. In Christ there is unity. Therefore, if we have just one spouse who loves the Lord and is seeking the Lord and the other one who's not, it is going to be an uphill battle and struggle till death do you part. But men, I would encourage you especially tonight, and the reason why I encourage you men especially is because I'm not a woman and I don't think like a woman. There are absolute distinct and stark differences that we can't fully grasp. If there's a husband in here tonight who says he totally understands how his wife thinks and acts, behaves, come talk to me. I would love to figure that out, right? But we don't, right? We find little quirks in things, but we don't have it all figured out about the opposite sex, do we? Why? Because we're made and designed different. He made male and female for a divine purpose and reason. And that's the beauty is that we're not all robots. We all have different personalities and uh, gifts and things that God has given he says in verse 29, For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. So for us men, and he spends an awful lot more time dealing with the men here in this, and I believe for a reason, I believe a biblical reason. If Adam does what Adam is supposed to do, I don't believe that Eve is beguiled. 
I don't I believe that if Adam does, as we're going to see in a few moments, if Adam fulfills his role biblically as God had called him to do it and designed him to do it, I don't think Eve finds herself in the mess, nor do I think that Adam would find himself in the mess that he was in. I believe it starts here with this very truth that no man ever hates his own flesh. He wants to take care of himself. So as you want to take care of yourself, would you not want to take care of your bride the way that Christ does? He says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. (laughs) Boy, isn't it? Marriage itself is a mystery, but so is this sort of mystery behind what it means with Jesus and his church, uh, the bridegroom and the bride. There is still yet some mystery, and, and there's a beauty of that. Can you imagine the day that the church of God meets all at one time our Lord and Savior? And much like in that wedding ceremony, boom, eyes lock for just a moment, and there we are, there He is, and we are purified and holy before Him, and now joined together for out, throughout eternity. So shall we ever be with the Lord. What a day that will truly be. He says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And he has given the instruction of the analogy of the family and the church because church is family, but specifically and spiritually speaking, when we look at Jesus being uh, the, the husband or, or the groom, if you will, and, and the church being the bride, we see how he has loved the church much more than himself. He has laid down his life for the church. He has laid down his life and given himself for them. He is uh, uh, desired to see that the church is, is pure and, and, and protected and, and prospering and, and, and glorifying to the Father. And therefore we, as he describes, wives submit your own husbands as unto the Lord, that you and I, as the church, should be in subject to Christ in all things at all times. And that means that in our worship services and our Bible studies, It means in every ministry that we have in the church, it must be submitted to Christ and Christ alone, to His Word. Anything outside of that, we we don't need it, nor should we desire it. It means as well that on a personal level that we submit every breath within our body from day to day to Christ. It means as well that in our marriages and in our homes and in our, our, our family unit that we submit to the Lord and we submit to Christ in all things. And in doing that, we find that God is most glorified and that the family and that relationships become that much more unified. But it takes each person doing that part. And that's the hard part. He says, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. This is a whole other sermon, and to be honest, it's a whole other sort of conference. It's a whole other series to deal with this sort of topic. It's a heavy topic, a difficult topic, but it's a topic that the Scripture deals with nonetheless. We must understand the roles and responsibilities of both parties, and ultimately, the common denominator of both the male and female, or the husband and the wife in the home, is to submit to Christ. What we find is that when we don't submit to Him, that's, is where, that's where sin is lying at the door. When we see in Genesis 3, as we'll see over the next few weeks, as we look at this, when 
Eve and, and Adam, when they sin, the, the reason why they do is because they stop fulfilling their God-designed role as image bearers and they begin to seek something else that is far more fulfilling. But it's not, is it? It's shallow. It lasts but just a moment and it's called sin. And the moment that we don't submit to the Lord, even for just that millisecond or that moment, that is when we sin. If I could be honest with you tonight, how many times I've had to pray to the Lord in repentance and asking Him, going, Lord, how come I can fight sin for this long and then win the battle and then the next moment, there it is again, and I just say, well, I fought good earlier, let me fight again, and can't fight. It's not because the strength is gone, it's because... At that moment, we desire more to submit to our flesh than we do to our, our husband, if you will. To our perfect, our perfect Savior who has given Himself for us to not just save us and redeem us, but to, to purify us and to make us something far greater than what we could ever do. And what we end up doing is sin is, is putting on this makeup on a pig and it's still a pig. We need Christ to purify, and only Christ can truly make us whole. And we try to put our, our own fig leaves on to make ourselves presentable before uh, the, the bridegroom, but there's nothing that we can put on ourselves to make us worthy except for His righteousness and submitting to Him. Now tonight, what I want to do is I want to read this. It's a long quote for you, and I included it for several reasons. One, because it's good. Two, because... I believe it truly sums up this passage and as well a whole lot better than what I can in one night. The roles and responsibilities and the differences in the home and the marriage and specifically with, with husband and wife and uh, how this impacts. I want to read for you. That, and by the way, this comes from Ligonier Ministries. If you go on their website and, and type in, you can find the same article under uh, spousal roles. All right. Uh, it says, That men are invested with a special leadership role within the context of the family does not in any way mean that women are somehow inferior to men. Amen. Our doctrine of the Trinity tells us that subordination and equality go together hand in hand. The Son of God is equal in dignity to the Father, but nevertheless is in submission to Him in John 1.1 and 5.19, for examples. Similarly, the wife is equal in dignity to her husband, though she is called to submit to his leadership. Such submission is not an excuse for tyranny. The task that Scripture gives to the husband is to love his wife, Ephesians 5, 25-28, just as Christ loves the church. He must be willing to lay his life on the line for her. He must cherish her so much that he works to help her grow even more beautiful, just as Christ works to present his bride to the Father without spot or blemish, verse 27. Loving her this much means that he will never forbid her to do anything that God commands or command her to do anything that God forbids. It also means that he will remember that she is a person and not to be run uh, roughshod over with decisions uh, when when decisions are made. He will respect her opinion and work to compromise when necessary. Nevertheless, the two will not agree at times, and in these cases the wife is called to submit insofar as she does not sin by doing so. Let us note, when one spouse fulfills his role, the other will find it less difficult to fulfill hers. The husband will more easily love the wife who respects him, and the wife will more easily submit to the husband who loves her as Christ does. 
Let us therefore fulfill our role so that our spouses will fulfill theirs. To that I say a, a wholehearted amen to that. I really think the key is found truly at the latter portion of that little blurb of an article. That if each one fulfills their biblical roles and responsibilities, things will go good. Now, even he agrees, and certainly the Bible even speaks to it, we don't always agree. Nor do we find a, uh, any couple throughout human history that has always agreed, yet when we find a biblical marriage, we find those balances, and we find those conversations that are had, and we find that everything, every decision that the husband makes, and every time that there is controversy, that the Scriptures are dealt with, the Scriptures are addressed, and looked to for guidance, for direction, as they always should be, not just individually, but as a home. Lord, help me to love and to lead my wife. And in that order, by the way, we have no right to lead if we have not the ability to love. And so love is sacrifice. And if I'm not sacrificing for my wife, I have no right to lead her because I have no ability to lead her if I'm not first loving the Lord and able to love her. And then... On the other side, if the, the wife's heart is not submitted to the Lord, it will not submit to the husband regardless of how godly he is. And this is unfortunately both sides is a total plague in the world today. And it's a heartbreaking one. We see the effects of it. We see the difficulties that it brings. But it boils down to this. Husbands, you want your wife to be a better wife? Be a better husband. Wives, you want your husbands to be better? Be better. If we do our role, if we do our job, I believe firmly that God will honor such. Will there be tough days? Yes. Will there be arguments? Yes. Will there be difficult days where you go, I don't know about this? Absolutely. But don't you think that it will be worth it? Certainly. Don't you think it's going to be worth it when Generation of generation of generation can look back and go, I want what grandma and granddad had. They had something special. Not just because they loved each other, but ultimately because they loved the Lord. You know, we often say to couples that are first getting married, we say, <laughs> boy, we say it. We say, keep God first, right? But it's coming from people who don't themselves. It's coming from marriages and homes that, you know, you hear unfortunately more at weddings people who are in marriages who tell a new couple or a newlywed couple that say, well, enjoy it because it's all over now, right? Or it's all downhill from here. Or, oh, I thought this was a funeral, right? Those sorts of things. And we joke and we laugh at them, right? The sad truth is that it should never, ever feel such a way. Marriage should be a joy because how could it not be a joy that God has placed two sinful people together who you go, how in the world could they even be together and unite them in Christ and before God and before people and allow them to live life together and to experience the ups and downs. There is nothing more beautiful than going year after year after year and watching God work and deliver you and be faithful to you as you are faithful to each other. And to see that, it's not a funeral. It's a beautiful picture 
of what Christ does for His church. A funeral would be the opposite. It would be something that is self-serving, self-pleasing, is, is bringing about death. Marriage is to bring life. That does not mean that babies have to come. It just means that life is there because the two are living together and spreading life and light to all that they are around. There's nothing more wonderful than to have such a couple. And I think all of us probably know of, of some couples in our, our life who would go, man, I, I want to have it like that one day. Right? And It might have been grandma and granddad. It might not have been. The point, nevertheless, is this, that each one of us are called. And it is a high calling. And I would say this tonight. Let's not mistake this. The only callings in this world are not just pastoral and ministerial. Perhaps one of the greatest, if not highest, callings that there is is to be a godly husband or father or to be a godly wife, a godly mother. Those are incredibly high callings. Unfortunately, though our society today degrades any woman who wishes to stay at home or to be a mother or to be married, I think, oh, oh, no, no, don't do, don't do that. You'll be trapped. Go explore. There's nothing wrong with going, and if you don't get married at, at 18 and stay with the, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Get married when you're supposed to get married. However, let's not look at women who say they want to be a wife and be a good one and be a mom and be a good one and say that they are slaves to some sort of male patriarchy. What they're doing is fulfilling what God has called them to do and they want to do it well and praise the Lord for it. And praise God as well for those moms who who do have to work but still go, I want to be a godly mom. I want to be a godly wife. Not just you know at work but at home in every which way and I need God's help and strength to do it because it is only by God's strength and help that anyone can be a good godly wife, mother, or father or husband. Only through the Lord, only through submitting to Him. Here in this whole thing, God is is picturing the marriage ceremony, the beauty of Jesus and His bride, the church. We see that in Revelation 19, 21, and 22. I want to present to you tonight a a word that is is used to help sort of bring it together. It's complementarianism. It is that male and female are equal yet not yet yet they are distinct with their qualified responsibilities when the home and church turn with me to first timothy chapter number two. First timothy chapter two beginning in verse number eight and we'll actually go down through into chapter 3. A very familiar passage, most of course associated simply with pastors and deacons, and certainly it is for such, but as well it is important for us all to see this and to understand our roles and responsibilities. 1 Timothy chapter number 2, verse number 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with uh, shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. No, this is not dealing with, if you're a woman tonight and you have earrings, that you're in sin. You're not. What this is dealing with is those who would, in that day and in that context, dress in such a way to impress those who were not their spouse. And specifically, it would even mimic those who were even a part of temple prostitution. All right? That's the deal that's dealing with. He says in verse number 10, but 
which becometh women uh, profession, uh, professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. And he goes into this familiar passage but I want to deal with it because these are all things, not just for the pastor and deacon, but I believe firmly for what this does show us in chapter 2 that we just read, and in chapter 3, is the roles and responsibilities, not just in the local church, but as well as in the home. That while both male and female in the church and in the home are equal, yet they are distinct. Much as we had talked about earlier within our Trinitarian doctrine. Okay, He says, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well in his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man not, uh, know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be uh, must have a good report within or without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. We find several things in here that deal with the home. The pastor, myself included, cannot take care of his home, and that first means in the home, the first relationship and highest priority relationship is not father and kids or mother and kids. It is husband and wife. The husband is not right relationship with the wife. He cannot and will not be in right relation with himself, the Lord, and the congregation. And it will not work. The home must be taken care of first. And I would say to you tonight, too, you guys are not my people. Y'all belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. The Lord has placed me here to be an under-shepherd, to lead, to guide, and to do so as Christ did for his church. However, my greatest ministry is not inside of these walls. My greatest ministry is in the sound booth tonight. And no, it's not Sharon, it's my wife. <laughs> Sharon's probably top five at this point. <laughs> it's my wife. And it must be. At the end of the day as well, on a practical level, one day she's going to take care of me and I'm going to take care of her when we're old and, and gray. Y- y'all won't. <laughs> right? <laughs> you might come visit me, right? Drop, drop off some soup or throw a can of potted meat in the front yard or something. I don't know, right? But she's going to take care of me. I'm going to take care of her. We need each other. Because as I've learned in ministry, most of the time, all that you have besides the Lord is your spouse. And I'm sure for those of you who are not in ministry, at least full-time ministry, you're still in ministry, by the way. You're still called to minister. What you have probably found in your own marriage is that there have been many a times and many a years where all that you have had is that person that you said I do to. Sometimes that's scary. But sometimes it's the most thrilling, wonderful, heart-filling thing that there is. And it makes you really realize what this is all about. As well in this passage, too, it not only shows the husband, the pastor, the father's role 
in this whole thing and how important his wife is to the whole home and to ministry. But as well, it also clearly distinguishes that if you're a woman, you are not a pastor, right? And to any woman who is a pastor, regardless of denomination, and yes, there are plenty of Baptist churches who would be considered conservative theologically who allow for women pastors, they are not pastors. They are impastors, right? They're imposters. And I would say as well to the men who have allowed that to happen on their church staff that they are just as feminine and womanly as they are. We have to understand that there is roles and responsibilities. The Bible is clear. It does not mean, though, that the woman is so sort of inferior person when it comes to church. As a matter of fact, some of the most godly people and individuals and workers in the church are women. And what is sad, especially in our culture and in our southern culture, and I would say now even more specifically in our Carroll County, Appalachian, Southwest Virginia culture, is that we have, unfortunately, more women who are much more dedicated to Christ than husbands and fathers are. Husbands and fathers here are much, very willing, and this happens a lot of places, unfortunately, in the vast majority of the world, very willing to go work, but not willing to come home and to even have a decent conversation with their wife or kids or to be involved in their life, let alone to get them to go to church, let alone to get them to lead their families, right? The vast majority of men want the power and the role and want a submissive, pretty little wife who, you know, they show up and there's a pot roast waiting for them when they get home, and that's it, right? They, they don't want the responsibility, though, of having to actually love their wife and love their children and to lead them. They like the idea of being in power and in authority, but they don't want that act with what that actually comes with. And I would say the same thing about being a pastor in this passage, that there are many who want the title and the authority that comes with it, but they don't want the responsibility. I don't like the authority and the leadership that comes with it at times because of the difficulty but it's a part of it. And I know that at this, when I read this, that I've got to live up to this. And I know that I have to give an account. Ultimately, and first and foremost, even before I give an account about how I led you or any other congregation I've ever served or may ever serve, is I have to give an account for how I loved and led my wife. And I would say to those tonight who are not pastors nor plan to be pastors, don't, don't do it. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. It, it is a privilege and an honor. But it so is being just a husband. Husbands, you're going to give an account before God one day. You're going to give an account. You're going to stand before God. You're not just going to give an account because you happen to, you know, whether or not you brought home a good money or not, whether you kept the cars in tip-top shape or how rough your hands were or how not rough your hands were. You are going to give an account not just for yourself, but for your wife and your household. You are the one who is responsible. And this is why I've heard many say, Eve ate first. Okay, sure. But Adam was the federal head of the human race, created first, and created and designed by God to love and to lead his wife. And he remained silent. He did nothing. He didn't chase away the serpent. He didn't uh, defend his wife, her honor. He did not protect her spiritually or guide her. And guess who had to give an account? Adam. 
Adam, where are you? Adam, why did you let her? Adam, why did you? How could you? That should humble us, convict us, yet thrill us that God has given us responsibility to have that account one day. But on the other side of that, dear ladies, do not think that you get off scot-free. For you too will give account for how you lived in humble submission and servanthood to your family and to the head of your home. It goes on in verse number 9, or excuse me, verse number 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not, greed, uh, not greedy or a filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith and a pure conscience. And uh, let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. But once again, what do we find? The emphasis of the home. Tonight, whether you're a pastor, a deacon, or anybody else, we find the emphasis of male and female roles and responsibilities, specifically in that of marriage and within the home and even outside of marriage. If you are a female, don't try to then be a male, but live as God called you to be. And if you are a male, don't try to live or be a female. Be who and what you are. Man at the root is to be in the home, the priest of the home the spiritual leader. It is your job, not your wife's job. It is your job to make sure the kids and your wife and yourself are ready to go to church. It is your job to initiate prayer in the home, at meals, and beyond meals as well. I believe we should certainly get back to the days of family altars and family worship. Not worshiping our family, but worshiping with our family. And that begins with husbands, fathers. Second, men, to be the protector physically. We naturally do because we like to puff out our chest and to make sure we know and everyone else knows how big, bad, and tough we are. I want you to know that does not define your masculinity or manness. There is much more to protecting your wife and your home than physical appearance and tough and ruggedness. You must protect them emotionally. You must protect them spiritually. And yes, you must as well be the provider through a great deal of sacrifice. But to the, the women, to the wives, to be the supporter, to be the self-giving servant to the, to, to the home. And, and truly, there are many who we would say, yes, as goes the the husband or the father, so goes the home, but the same can be said as well for the mother. It takes both to be godly and seeking God, and especially, even more so, seeking God together to then have children who will do the same in a home that will be united and strong together to then make a strong church. 
if we fail to faithfully uphold the covenant and responsibilities which God has given to us, then we will have failed relationships, marriages, and families. Adam fails as the shepherd of the home. He fails to properly and lovingly lead his wife as the priest of his home. He should have cared more for her soul, and he did not. Eve, however, fails to properly submit to her husband in the word of God that she knew but added to and listened to the lies. These were the results of failing to believe and obey the word of God. You can disagree or dislike me, what I have to say, but we must submit to what God has said. Ultimately, both Adam and Eve did not submit to God fully. And the reason why we find our nation and our world in the shape it is today is because we have not submitted to God. Tonight, I want to give you a brief history. Tonight, truly, I really could break these different sections down into much more, but I think for everyone's sake and my own sake, we we must move on. Chapter 3 in Genesis holds a lot. A lot of great things. And I look forward to it. But I want to give you America's history here. You would say, first, I haven't been around as long, sure, but I'm, I'm in a special place. Getting ready to be 28 uh, in, in February, and I find myself in the spot where I remember being in, in a time where we used to hang up the phone, because you actually had to hang it up because it was on a cord and it was attached, right? We had answering machines. And then I remember when my dad got a beeper or a pager, right? I don't know, that thing may as well have been from Star Trek. I, 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 it was amazing, right? And I remember my dad getting a, a cell phone, and, and it was only used for, like, emergency sort of thing. It was, you know, I mean, it was just kind of there. It was, you know, that big and all that stuff, and watching the progression of things. But I remember what life was like before Internet, before many of the technologies, but I also have grown up with some of it as it's been introduced. So I'm in this sort of strange spot where I, I can relate to the old world, and now the world after these technologies truly is a whole new world. You realize that today, and this dawned on me when I was a youth pastor, that they were kids that I was ministering to who were not alive when 9-11 happened, so they had no idea why we were still fighting or anything like that. They didn't know who Osama bin Laden was. They didn't know when the internet was invented. They thought 80s music and 90s music was old, right? <laughs> Come on, Right? I mean, even the oldie station won't play anything past the 60s. I mean, at least start there. Come on. But I want to give you some, some, some brief history here. We could honestly go back and to see how we've gotten ourselves in the shape that we've gotten ourselves going all the way back to the very foundation of our nation's history. You could argue it one way or the other. That's a different topic for a different day. But I want to show us sort of picking up from World War II. World War II, we come home. We are two-time heavyweight defending world champions. It's great, right? We come, come home, and we get into the 50s, and jobs are hopping. Things are great. Morale is up. People have jobs and good incomes, and, you know, wives are staying home, and it's a sort of I Love Lucy sort of thing. It's Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch. I mean, the whole thing is like every perfect little families, white picket fences, Chevrolet refrigerators are starting to happen, right? We're getting, we all got running water. We got, we're starting to get uh, uh, microwaves and new technology starting to boom and advance in things. 
We're also then starting now to fight communism. We're starting to see like what's good, what's bad. Right? We don't have world, war, uh, world wars happening anymore, but now we're starting to fight in different ways. The world is starting to change, but yet things in the 50s are pretty good, and we're enjoying the benefits of, uh, of what has happened. But then the 60s come, a new generation arises, and throughout the 50s with the good times, there was a, a loosening and a restraining of some things. Not to mention spiritually, just about a couple of decades beforehand, there was an incredible split between uh, many of the conservative um, Baptists and things. Uh, you have the breakout of the Southern Baptists versus the Independent Baptists, and then the same thing is starting to happen within the other denominations, the Methodists, Presbyterians and things. Uh, the nation begins to become slowly more divided spiritually. What everyone used to know and hold to as moral and right is slowly starting to be questioned and brought into question as liberal theology is overtaken. And now the rise of new technology and a new world and a new way of thinking has been brought in. And now we come into the 60s, things are loosening up spiritually, morally, politically, and they all start, by the way, in the home. The home is where this takes place. One of the downfalls is we start in this time to... Uh, socialize everything, right? Our kids go to a socialized public school system. Then we come to church and we send our kids off to a socialized spiritual system where we want to make sure that we just had fun and they stayed out of our hair so we could do big people church. And then what that takes place is now we have a generation who wants entertainment, has had no theology, no doctrine, and now they go off to university in the 60s and they're introduced to new ideas. Uh, a war is starting to break out. Uh, the world is starting to become more chaos between everything is divided and they don't know what to think because they don't know who they are. They don't know who they are because they were not taught who they are supposed to be or meant to be in the home. Then, of course, the 70s come. The world has been in a mess. We have several huge things that happen sort of uh, in coercion together. We have, as we talked about Sunday night, Roe versus Wade takes place in the early 70s with the legalization of, of abortion and the promotion of such. Then we as well have during this time in, from the 60s and going on in the 70s, the sexual revolution where it is a no-holds-barred, everything has taken place. Uh, we're, guard, we're starting to get into the generation of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and, and everything is going crazy. Now the generation gap starts to appear where you've got those who fought in World War II are going, what are these kids doing? This isn't what I fought for. And then we also now have, have another group who went and fought overseas and come back and, and are getting spit on. And they're going, well, I didn't fight for that neither. And now there's such a generation gap. This generation thinks a total different way, and this one can't relate anymore because this one did not get what this one got at home. This generation went through hard times, through the Depression, through the Great Dust Bowl, and through working on farms, and not having the technologies and the things that this one grew up with. This one became spoiled. This one was told not to go get a job, but to go to university and college, which then now, here we are. And now they start having kids. And now those kids have now had kids. And now there's, within about 30 years, we go from not just legalizing abortion and having a sexual revolution to you fast forward about 30 years later to where now we are promoting everything that is LGBTQ+. We have now, um, as a nation, voted as a Supreme Court that marriage can be whatever you want it to be. And no, it cannot, because God has already told us. And then we find everything has gone from bad 
to ugly to worse. We go, how did we get here? Somewhere along the line, we stopped having our men be men, our women be women, and to be men and women for God. We stopped submitting as men to the Lord. We stopped submitting as women, stopped submitting to the Lord, to husbands. The homes were broken. The homes were devastated. And the generation gaps take place. And now no one has a clue. And every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes, which is ultimately sinful. Hard times had produced strong men. Strong men had produced them the good times, but the good times then produced weak men, and then the weak men then have brought hard times. The sad reality, though, is that now we cannot even barely begin to teach what it means to be a man because we now have to teach what it means to be a human. We're living in a post, not just a post-Christian culture, we're living in a post-human culture that we don't know what it means to be human anymore because now we have kids as young as 18 months old who are addicted to technology and can manipulate technology far better than anyone else. And it's become a part of them. They know no other way. And we could say, and I hear it, and I get it to a degree, it's these young generations, and I get you, and I hear it, to a degree, it's awful, and you're right. But may we not forget that one generation either taught the next one or didn't. And I think what happened is that this generation tried to teach some things and taught some good things like hard work, education, right? Those are good. But they didn't teach what it means to be a man, what it means to submit to God, what it means to have not just calloused hands, but calloused knees from prayer. And this generation is gone. We are in what I believe to be, and what I believe Romans calls a reprobate society. I want to read for you this tonight, and we'll be done. I told you I'd finish this tonight, and I mean it. Notice this progression. This is the way a nation will go that has been given over by God to their own sinfulness. Reprobation is not just that God is judging, but God is judging by allowing them to stay in their sin, which just leads to more sin. The sin is the cause, but it is also the judgment. All right? Sin is the cause of judgment, but the judgment that God gives is that they stay in their sin and continue to abound in their sin and get worse and worse in it. That's where we're at as a nation. How many of you tonight would say that you thought you would see the day where you see all that you see now? I mean, never. Never. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. What have we done in the past 60 years as a nation? 
smartest, brightest, biggest, and best. But here spiritually the most foolish. And change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Idolatry. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Immorality. You will not have immorality unless you first have idolatry of the heart. The one builds upon the other. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Yes, that means exactly what you think it means. I would say as well in verse 26, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That is not just dealing with sexual perversion, but as well as what we dealt with Sunday night. If a woman is the only, and by the way, a woman is the only human being that can bring forth life and hold and carry life for nine months to then birth life, to leave the natural use as well means for a mom to hate that child and to murder that child before the child comes out of the womb. We've done more than legalize it. We've shouted it and promoted it. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. Notice that phrase, God gave them over. God gave them over. Sin caused this, but the sin is the judgment and it will find us to ruin and destruction. Gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, Deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. It's not just that they do evil things, but they invent ways to do more evil things. Certainly where we're at today. He says, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without moral affection, implacable, unmerciful who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. The world takes pleasure in such. But the sad truth is that in this reprobate society and reprobate generation, a reprobate world, is that this world hates God. Because they hate God, they hate how God has described and ordained male and female in the home. And the hatred and the attack of the home has been going on for decades now. And we have not done a thing about it. Our men have done the same thing that Adam did. And we're going to look at this over the next few weeks. Remain silent. The silence killed. And this is where we're at today. This is the fruit of unfaithfully disobeying God's natural order of gender, gender roles, family values, and biblical marriage. And no, it cannot politically be made okay in the matter of a couple of votes. This is a heart issue. I don't care if the whole, if if all 50 states and every single bit of of Washington, D.C. turns into whatever 
side of politics you want it to turn to, unless hearts change and unless men submit to God and women submit to God, nothing will change. Destruction of the hearts and the homes of a society is a judgment of God. Today, what we need now more than ever before are strong homes. But we will only have strong homes if we have strong, godly men and women who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, strength. I ask you tonight, and I ask myself, well, will, will we be not just what we're supposed to be, but what our children and grandchildren and our society and our Lord needs us to be? I believe firmly that God would do great things in our homes, great things in our hearts, if we will but submit to Him. May we do so, so that we would not continue to see the effects of Genesis 3 and Romans chapter 1, not just in our nation, but we see those effects in our relationships, in our families, in our own hearts, in our own minds. May the Lord be merciful and help us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this night. Grateful for your goodness, your faithfulness to us, Lord. The fact that you have spared a world and a nation as this is evidence of your grace and your mercy. It is evidence that you still seek to desire to save those who need saving. Lord, it shows as well, God, that there is still opportunity and time and a call for repentance and redemption. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to be who you have called us to be according to your word and that we would submit to your word and your will and to do your work in this world, God, so that we might see not just through casting a vote, but Lord, rather through each one of us submitting to you that we would see this world begin to change, that we would see souls saved and families united and and homes restored and, and hearts mended that were broken. God, I pray that you would use us In these dark days, Lord, not to lose hope, not to give up, not to throw in the towel, not to quit, not to hold on till this ride is over, but rather, God, to saddle up and to keep going, to keep fighting the good fight of faith until our fight is over. Lord, help us, give us strength, give us mercy, give us grace. We love you, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all, and uh, y'all.